We're finishing up Jesus's ministry to the Jews here in Mark chapter 6 today, moving on to his ministry to the Gentiles. So uh, let me read this closing section of the witness to the Jews, and then I'll go on to, to read through chapter 7 as well, just to get a sense of the flow from this section to the next. So remember, we're, we're right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. He's been traveling around Galilee. It's his third, let me go back, it's his, uh, it's his third uh, preaching tour through Galilee. We also saw last week that there was a shift in responsibility towards the disciples, even though they uh, didn't seem like they were quite ready for that shift. All the stories, including this one, are taking place on the northwest shore of Galilee leading up through this one, and then we'll shift into Tyre and Sidon, a purely Gentile area. And so we're kind of concluding this third preaching tour to the Jews in Galilee. This is the third time that the Pharisees are going to challenge Jesus. So let's get into that. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come up from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment in God, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to satisfy your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when you have entered a house, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciple asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And then moving on to the witness to the Gentiles. And from there he arose and went out of the region of Tyre and Sidon 
and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And then looked up to heaven, and he sighed, and he said to him, Ephathata, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well, even makes deaf hear and mute speak. And in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were 4, 000, about 4,000. And he sent them, on the, uh, sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. So first we get the opposition of the Pharisees to conclude the uh, mission to the Jews. Again, uh, I want to reference that I've been very much helped by D.A. Carson's commentary on Mark. Just a, is an excellent commentary. Uh, D.A. Uh, Dr. Carson is particularly good at seeing the flow of narratives and how one flows into the, into the next and setting everything in its context. What we're going to see here uh, in this, the longest of the conflict narratives between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees is a very strong distinction between uh, Jewish ethics and Christian ethics. For the, for the, in the Jewish ethic, what's important is the observance of particular rituals. And what Jesus is going to establish as the Christian ethic is the importance of what comes out of the man, what the heart desires. And uh, this will play a huge role in the way that the apostles think uh, in, uh, after the resurrection. This story will be probably have a huge impact on Peter as he's uh, thinking about 
uh, his vision in Acts 10. Most commentators believe that Mark got his stories from Peter, that this is really Peter's gospel as relayed through Mark. And so this story is playing a, a big role in Peter's life. And then one thing I want to point out about this story. I often hear in our culture people talking about how the clean and unclean things that God gave to Moses was really about protecting his people. He only wanted them to eat healthy food, and he wanted them to, you know, eat with clean hands because God knew about germs, but the Israelites didn't know about germs, and so God was using the clean and unclean to protect his people. You know, now we know that shellfish is bad for you. If you have high cholesterol and are likely to die of a heart attack, of course, they didn't know that back then. And so God said, don't eat shellfish. Well, the problem with that way of thinking is (laughs) you get to this passage and Jesus declares all foods clean to eat. Does that mean Jesus doesn't care about our health? It really wasn't about hygiene and health. It was about being separate from a fallen and dirty world, a sinful world, and to be set apart as God's people, to be God's holy people in God's holy land, to be different from the world around them. It got to the point in the pharisaical thinking, you can see that this is that they understood it this way, because uh, you know, as the Pharisees added the oral tradition. Uh, there were certain sections of Daniel and Ezra that were written in Aramaic, and your hands became unclean if you touched those portions of the Bible. So you had to wash your hands before you ate if you had read your Bible that day because your hands had become unclean. If you had a copy of the Bible in that had been, you know, there was, a co- there was an Old Testament translation in Assyrian back then. If you read from that version, any part of that version, you became unclean and had to wash before uh, eating. So they clearly understood it as a us-them, not as some sort of hygiene thing. And then another thing to point out, he's dealing here with the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, it's at least in my experience in my growing up, you know, when, they to- when we talk about the difference between this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's the Pharisees believed in resurrection and, and bodily resurrection, the Sadducees didn't. That's you know that I hear that I've heard that many 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 times in my life, growing up as a Christian. But the one that gets mentioned less is that the Sadducees were Torah only. They believed that you followed only the Torah. It was the Pharisees that developed all the additional rules, and so this was yet another point of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees didn't, I mean, the Sadducees didn't follow the traditions. And so, you know, Jesus just kind of makes everybody mad. He follows the Pharisees in believing in the resurrection, and he follows the Sadducees in not following the Pharisees' rules. So nobody likes him in the, you know, in the hierarchy of the church. So the Pharisees and their scribes have arrived to question Jesus yet again, and they notice that he's, his disciples are not following the oral tradition. And, and so then Jesus goes, as you might say, on the offensive and points out that they are using their tradition to get around the clear teaching of the law. And so he's, he brings up this issue of, of Corban. And 
Corban is, uh, we, we, we kind of have the same thing now. Uh, it's called uh, deferred giving. So you can set up an account. We, we have these, the PCA Foundation has these. You can send money down to Atlanta that they'll hold for you, and you still have full control over it, and you get your tax write-off as soon as you send it to them. But then over time, you can give it to whatever charity you want to. You can farm it out from there. So you get the, benef the tax benefit of donating it now, but you're still in control of it to send it out to people later. This is kind of the same thing, but even more you're in control of it. So I declare right now, like in my last will and testament, that I'm going to give my entire estate to All Saints. Now, I still get to live in the house. I get to use the money for whatever I want to use it for. What I don't have to use it for is taking care of Susu because that money now is not hers to take care of her in her old age. It belongs to the church. And so that's what they were, they were doing. It was a, you know, we, we talk about tax loopholes. Well, this is kind of a fifth commandment loophole a way to get around the fifth commandment to take care of your parents. And, of course, the Pharisees liked this loophole because it meant my estate ends up in their hands eventually. And it's not just like a oops. It's not like, they, you know, sometimes government will write a law and then there'll be these unintended consequences. Like, you know, we didn't foresee that this would be the outcome of that law. We had a good intention, but it, it worked out badly. That's not the case. Jesus really goes, goes after them. If you look right here in the middle of this paragraph, if your mother or father are in need, you can, you can say, you know, whatever I've gained, whatever is due to you, where I'm supposed to take care of you, it's Corban that is given to God. And then he says, so now he's addressing the Pharisees, and these yous are plural. These are y'alls. Then, then you all... You Pharisees, you all no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making the uh, word of God, thus voiding the word of God by your all's tradition that you all have handed down, and many such things you all do. So he's really, you know, he's coming, he's coming after them. He's saying this isn't, this isn't one of those kind of little loophole things, that unintended consequence that no one saw, but you're doing this on purpose. You no longer permit them to do anything for their father and mother. Once it, even if it was like an unattended consequence, you, once you realized that this was going to require breaking a fifth commandment, you should have backed off and gone, oh, well, okay, with the one exception, you still have to take care of your mother and father. But no, you all forbid them from taking care of the father and mother, and you have nullified the word of God, the actual Ten Commandments of God, but what you have handed down, and many such things you all do. This is just one example. So then he, he turns to the people. He kind of attacks the Pharisees, and then he turns to the people. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of person that by going into him can defile him. So even if you ate unclean food with unclean hands, that going into you cannot defile you. That is not what makes you a sinner. And then uh, when he had entered the house, he began to explain this to his disciples. 
He said, don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his, it enters his, his stomach and is expelled. He poops it out, is what he said. It just is expelled. It comes in, it goes out. And thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For with him, from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts. Now, here are the evil thoughts. So it, the evil thoughts here is the, is the generic of which the next 12 are the particulars. And the first six, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, are all in one, two, three, four. Yeah, are all in the plural in the Greek. That doesn't show up in our in our English translation, but they're all in the plural in the Greek. And then the last six, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, are all in the singular in the Greek. And D. A. Carson said, uh, "What you see here is actions and attitudes, or actions and feelings, or desires." And so he's talking about sexually moral acts, the acts of theft, acts of murder, acts of adultery, acts of coveting, acts of wickedness. And in your heart is just deceit and sensuality and envy and slander. Now, you're not acts of slander, but you just, just generally slander people in your heart. You just don't care. And pride and foolishness. And so it's these things, the things that come out of the heart, the things that we do, and the things that our heart drives us to, these are the things that defile a person. And so he's, he's turned the ethic of the Pharisees, you know, on its, on its head. And this, it really is very similar to this kind of things he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees had a whole long list of different oaths. And each oath had a different level of you better keep it. You could swear by your head. You swear by the hairs on your head. You could swear by the temple. You could swear by the holy things that were in the temple. You could make us make swears on all these various things. And for the Pharisees then, depending on which swear you used, then it became more important that you actually keep your word. You know, this was it was just a little sin. If you swore by the hairs on your head and then didn't keep your word, that's a little sin. But if you swear by the temple or the holy things in the temple, then that's a big swear. And if you don't keep what you said, then that was, that was a big sin for the Pharisees. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes along and goes, it's basically the same thing. He says, you've developed this tradition that allows you to bear false testimony, right? You're overturning the law of God with this legalistic code of swearing he says so don't swear at all just let your yes be yes and your no be no the commandment is don't bear false testimony it doesn't say don't bear false testimony if your fingers are crossed behind your back and so the uh, Jesus is saying this is the kind of stuff that they're doing all the time with their law and what really defiles the person is that desire to put the fingers behind the back you remember, do you all, all know this? Yeah, most of you are old. Okay, yeah. you know, if you have your fingers behind your back, then you don't have to, you know, then you can tell a lie to your friend or you don't have to do what you said you're going to do. That's kind of the way they were dealing with it. And Jesus saying it, that's what defiles you. It's that desire to get away with it. It's that desire to be deceitful and 
uh, sensual and envious and slanderous and pride and to seek all sorts of foolishness that, that is the sin that defiles us. And then one thing that uh, Mark is clearly pointing out here besides what makes one defiled and what makes one not defiled is that Mark is clearly pointing out that Jesus not only has authority over the traditions of the Pharisees, but Jesus has authority over the Torah itself. So the swearing or the korban or all those things were made up by the Pharisees, and Jesus there is calling them back to, to the word of God. But then when he says that no food can make you unclean, He's taking authority even over the Word of God because the Word of God, it's not tradition that says don't eat shellfish. It's actually the Word of God that says don't eat shellfish. And Jesus is saying, you know, I'm coming. This is a, another way of saying, you know, I'm bringing a new covenant, not the covenant that Moses brought, but I'm bringing a new covenant. And uh, Mark is pointing out that Jesus has authority both over the traditions of uh, the Pharisees as well as the Word of God. I want to read one thing from, from D.A. Carson. So D.A. Carson said, uh, this is the longest conflict speech in the Gospel of Mark. The length of the section is a clue to its importance. Mark labors to clarify that the essential purpose of the Torah and hence the foundation of morality is a matter of inward purity, motive, and intent rather than external compliance to ritual and custom. The controversy thus cannot be interpreted as a case of Christian antinomianism, antinomianism, you know, Christians being against the law, but rather for the recovery of the true intent of the Torah. Uncleanness can no longer be considered uh, a property of objects, but rather a description of inner attitudes, a condition of the heart. The goodness of a deed depends not solely on its doing, but primarily on its intent. The judgment of Jesus should in sharp, uh, stood in sharp contrast to that of the Essenes, for whom purity was determined by allegiance to the community, and also in contrast to the Pharisees, for whom purity consisted in a directory of observances and prescriptions. The approach of the Essenes and the Pharisees leached the law of its intended purpose and resulted in attempts to establish human substitutes for divine judgment and grace, Jesus, on the contrary, and said, Jesus, on the contrary, and not the traditions of men, is able to declare what is pleasing to God. Mark profiles Jesus as the one who, in contrast to the oral tradition, is the true revealer of God. For Jesus can produce inner transformation that the law requires but cannot effect. So, Mark is is very much giving us a whole new view of, of Jesus as well as the law here. And that wraps up then his ministry to, to the Jews and begins his ministry to the, to the Gentiles. And it's a relatively short, you know, Mark 7, 8 through 10 is relatively short. It clearly was a longer ministry than we get the impression of in, in the text because he covers about 120 miles over the course of this chapter in 10 verses. Uh, and it's a, a circuitous route from Tyre to Sidon. He's basically going, it would be the equivalent of uh, traveling from 
D.C. to Richmond via Philadelphia. So he's going to create the kind of this big horseshoe travel over the course of 120 miles as he travels through Gentile territory. There have been, interestingly, there have been 15 references. Paul's at Mark. Mark has made 15 references up to this point in the gospel to Jesus' teaching. And then he taught, and then he taught them, and, and Jesus' teaching, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's not referenced a single time in this chapter plus 10 verses, this ministry to the Gentile. It never mentions Jesus' teaching. It's all going to be uh, Jesus's doing or performing of miracles or, or just hiding out. And D.A. Carson uh, supposed, and I think he's right, that this is going to be primarily because Jesus's ministry, his teaching ministry, his proclamation of the gospel was first and foremost to the Jews. And the ministry of evangelization to the Gentiles would come later would come with after Pentecost with the sending out of the apostles and particularly in the ministry of, of Paul. And so the question becomes, what is he doing in Gentile territory in the first place? Why is he up there if he's not up there to teach? And I think we've seen clues to that in his ministry to the Jews. So what's happened in the last chapter and a half is that Herod has heard about Jesus and thinks he's uh, John the Baptist resurrected. So what did Herod do to John the Baptist? Beheaded him. What's he likely to want to do to the person who is the resurrected John the Baptist? Behead him, right? And then we had the feeding of the 5,000, and we saw that at the end of that, the mob wanted to take him and make him a political king, which he needs, which Jesus is purposely tries to avoid. And now he's had this big conflict uh, with the Pharisees who have come out of Jerusalem and chased him to Galilee. And so I think, I think it's fair to assume, Mark never says it, but I think it's fair to assume, given all that stuff that's going on in Jewish territory, that he's gone to Gentile territory to let things cool down. He's avoiding the, the pressure to become king or to be executed or to become a political king, or to be executed, or any of the wrong thinking, or to be captured by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to be put before a religious court. So he says that he rose from where he was there, dealing with the Pharisees, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. Okay, again, so he's fleeing from... uh, uh, Jewish territory into Gentile territory and hiding. He went into a house and he didn't want anyone to know. And Tyre uh, is modern-day Lebanon. It's the place that Jezebel comes from. Josephus referred to Tyre as the Jews' greatest enemy. Uh, so he's, he's fleeing into uh, enemy territory. But he can't remain hidden. And this Gentile woman, the Seraphonician woman, uh, comes and asks that her daughter be healed of this unclean spirit. She has a demon. And she falls down at Jesus' feet and begs him that he would cleanse her daughter. The most recent person to fall at Jesus' feet in the, narr- in, in the book of Mark was Jairus. And there's no, you couldn't contrast 
two people more extremely than Jairus and the Seraphonician woman. You know, Jairus was, you know, kind of we said the head ruling elder. He was the head of the synagogue. He was the chief elder of the synagogue. He was the most important person in the local church. And then uh, the Seraphonician woman is a woman, a Gentile woman from Israel's greatest enemy. Uh, this is not, you know, you, you know like you're just going to draw those extremes. These are the two. And they both come and they fall at Jesus' feet. They both realize both the, the greatest leader of the church and the least of the Gentiles of the world both need Jesus and both realize that their position means nothing. Having the great position means nothing. Having the least position means nothing. Jesus means everything. They both uh, fall at his feet. And I think uh, Mark is putting these two stories for us in, in contrast so that we, will, that we will see it. That it doesn't matter if you're the greatest or the least of these. What you need is Jesus. In Matthew's telling of the story at the end, Jesus ex- exclaims, what great faith. In, the, in Mark's version, uh, he just says, you know, for, for your answer, your daughter is healed, go on your way. But in, in Matthew's uh, rendition, in Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus actually says, what great faith. You have amazing faith. And I think we're supposed to pick that up in Mark as well because the, the, the Seraphonician, he's, you know, he's been dealing with, with Jews all the way up to this point. It's this Gentile woman is the first woman to get the parable. Up to this point, every time he's told a parable, he's had to take people aside and explain it to them. It's the Gentile woman, the Seraphonician woman, who actually understands the parable. She's the first one in all of the narrative where she gets it. She knows knows exactly who Jesus is in the parable. She knows exactly who she is in the parable, and she accepts that. You know, occasionally the Pharisees get who Jesus thinks they are in the parable, but they reject it. She actually gets it and accepts it. And so she asks for this healing, and Jesus, uh, Jesus responds with the parable. Let the children be fed uh, first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this is also probably, or it seems to us, the harshest of all of Jesus' parables, Right? Uh, we, we squirm a little bit when we read that Jesus referred to this woman as a dog. And many commentators have tried to kind of soften it in some way. And there's really no good way to, to soften it other than to say it is a parable. He didn't just look at her and go, you dog. You know, he's not addressing her directly. He's telling a parable. Of course, in the parable, she's the dog. But other than, you know, the way to soften it is that she's a dog. Now, there are different words for dogs in, 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 uh, in, the, in, Ju- in the Hebrew language. There is the street mutt, the mongrel, the, you know, the, the dog who just, you know, eats from the trash, the wild dog. And then, uh, then there's uh, uh, this word for um, that's more commonly used uh, when the dog is a pet. Uh, and, and so Jesus does use the pet version of the dog here. Now, you got to remember, though, we love our dogs. In America, we're all about the dogs. 
but the Jews were not about the dogs. There weren't a lot of pet dogs in, in Israel. And, and so this is almost more of a, a Gentile reference in talking about, uh, you know, a pet dog. And, so he's, and it even fits with the narrative because we have this household. The parable is about a household where there's children. And Jesus said, you know, the children should be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And again, as I mentioned, she gets it. She understands uh, the parable. She understands that the children are the Israelites, that Jesus is the master of the table, and that she is the dog. Now, and she, when she repeats it back, she says, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the, but yet, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She uses all the same words as Jesus, except for children. Jesus used the Greek word for biological children. She uses the word that could be uh, understood for any uh, lesser person in the household. So the children would fall into this category, but so would the servants fall into this category. So she shifts the narrative slightly. She says she still is she's seeing herself as the dog, but she is she's wrestling with the Lord. Like Jacob, she's wrestling with the Lord. And she says, Yes, but even the dogs under the table should be allowed to eat the crumbs that fall from the children and the servants. So she's already expanding the idea. If the children uh, in the parable are Israel, the children of Israel as the children of God, she's going, Yeah, but there's servants too. There are servants in the household, not just children. And even the dogs, not just the servants, but even the dogs will get to eat the uh, crumbs that fall from the children's table. So she has understood the parable. She's taken it on to herself. And so Jesus responds, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and finally found the child laying in bed, and the demon was gone. And as I said, as I said in Matthew fifteen twenty-eight, Jesus proclaims, Oh, what great faith! that she would see the she would understand the parable that she would receive it that she would throw herself on the mercy of of Jesus now here's the other interesting thing this phrase here for in 27 let the children be fed first uses a, a word a greek word that is only used here in the gospel markets used here and in the feeding of the 5,000 that came earlier and in the feeding of the 4,000 that will come later. And it basically means eat all they want, have, be satisfied. So in the feeding of 4,000, you know, they, they take the bread and they distribute it to everyone and everyone eats all that, you know, they're, until they're satisfied. And so Jesus is, when he says, uh, you know, let the little children eat first, he's using the language of they should have, they should have all that they want. They should have all that they need before, uh, you know, the, the dogs get fed. Uh, and so I think this also is purposeful on Mark because the feeding of the 5,000 was the feeding of uh, the Jews and the feeding of the 4,000 is going to be up here in Gentile territories, the feeding of the Gentiles. And in the middle is this story about this parable about the children eating first and then the dogs. And it's using the same language in each of those three. And so what we see happening is in 
the parable, in dealing with the Pharisees in the earlier chapter, he was declaring uh, all foods clean. And here we are now in the Gentile t- territory declaring all people clean. So we've, uh, we've shifted uh, in that way. So then we move on uh, to, the, to the deaf man. So then Jesus returns from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So again, that's that big loop. You go Tyre, Sidon, Decapolis. And they brought him a man uh, who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, remember Decapolis is the area where we ran into the, the demoniac legion, right? And remember what everybody, you know, when he left there last time, it was because everybody's like, go away, go away, go away, go away. But now he's returned, and I don't know, his reputation has grown, or maybe the ministry of uh, the demoniac has actually, you know, he's been telling people, he said he went to Decapolis and told them all about what Jesus had done for him. Uh, and so his reputation is spreading, he's returned, and now they're bringing uh, the sick to him and begging uh, that they lay hands on him. And so he takes this man who's deaf and has a speech impediment, he takes him aside uh, and away from the crowd, and he heals him. And interestingly here, remember we're, we're in the Gentile area, we're in Lebanon, and they, they bring this man with a speech impediment, it says. So it, it, he's not mute. He has a speech impediment, which is fairly typical for if you're born deaf, then you, don't, you can't hear, you don't speak well. So he has a speech impediment. The word here for speech impediment is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, and it's only used once in the Greek Old Testament, and it's in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 starts out, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. So this is a poetic section of Isaiah. He's just pronounced judgment on the nations. And then he starts talking about the eschaton. He starts talking about the end in this poetic section. And he says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom uh, like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing, and the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. So we have a reference here of the very area in which uh, Jesus is. And then going down a little ways to describe what the eschaton will be like, the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then they shall, the lame shall leap like the deer, and the tongue which has the speech impediment, shall sing for joy. It uses the same word there. It's the only other place. And so here Jesus is in Lebanon doing the very thing that Isaiah said would happen at the, uh, at the, at the eschaton in the end. Uh, Jesus is bringing in uh, the, new, the new kingdom. He then continues to tell people not to talk about what he's doing there in, uh, in Gentile territory. But the more he tells them, the more zealously they proclaim it. And so he ends up with a big following uh, in, in the Gentile territory, just like he did in the Jewish territory. He ends up with 4,000 people following him around. This is a very uh, similar story, uh, especially in the disciples' reaction to what's going on, to the feeding of the 5,000, so much so 
that most liberal commentators and even some conservative commentators think that this is a retelling of the same story. I don't think that's the case, and most conservative commentators don't think that, that, that this is a retelling of the same uh, story. But what I think it does help us realize, it's this, we have the same problem in the New Testament that we have throughout the whole of the Bible. As we think about the various Bible stories, it seems like miracles are happening all over the place all the time. But if you actually plot out the miracles on a timeline and on the globe, miracles very rarely ever happen in time, and they don't happen everywhere. They happen in very limited areas, right? And so as we read through the Gospel of Mark, it just seems like there's just one miracle after another, that that's just kind of what Jesus is doing. He's just he's creating you know, this, and he's making that, and he's healing this, and he's healing that. Uh, but if you take the entire three-year ministry and plot the miracles on it, then it's not like it's a constant, everyday sort of thing that's going on. And, and so they didn't eat miraculous bread every day. Normally, they bought bread. That was the normal modus operandi of Jesus and the 12 disciples. They're traveling around. They buy their bread. They eat the bread that they bought. So we've approached here the 4,000. Uh, we're out with the 4,000. We've been out there for three days, and the crowd that has come has run out of food. Now, this is an even more desolate place than where they were with the feeding of the 5,000. Because remember, the disciples at the feeding of 5,000 was send them into the surrounding countryside and villages where they can, you know, get food. And here, the disciples are like, there's, there's nowhere. There's nowhere to send them. You know, uh, there's not, this is so desolate, desolate, there's nowhere to send them. And Jesus even says that if they go to get food now, they're going to pass out before they ever get near any food. Uh, so there's even there's nowhere to send them. And, and so he tells them to feed the crowd, and they're like, how can we do that? And then uh, we take up the very similar, you know, he receives the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to the disciples, they distribute it to the crowd. Interestingly, the fish are mentioned after uh, the bread is distributed. I don't know why. Uh, it is interesting here, the few small fish, again, that's a different word that was used than the feeding of the 5,000. That's why it says a few small fish rather than a few fish. D.A. Carson suggested that they might actually be like sardines, like small fish, just a few small fish, because that's, the, you know, it's, the, it's the, a diminutive word. It's a, it really means small fish. They only have a few small fish. Back home in Appalachia, it might have been bluegill. You know, we used to, you know, you'd go to catch, you'd want to catch a, a, a trout or a bass, and you'd end up catching a bluegill. It was so disappointing. So they had a few small fish. And, uh, but, again, uh, they distribute it, uh, and the, uh, there are, this time, uh, seven baskets full left over uh, at the end. I mentioned this last time here. It says he fed 4,000 people as opposed to 4,000 men in the first one. Uh, so this is a smaller group. Uh, whether or not there were women and children with the first group or not, either way, this is a, a smaller group. And very similar uh, in the ending. He sends them away after he's fed them and then gets in the boat uh, and, and goes uh, across to a different region. 
And the other big difference between this and the feeding of the 5,000, as I mentioned, no mention is, uh, of his teaching. They're with him for three days, and Mark doesn't mention teaching. In the feeding of the 5,000, remember it said we made a big deal out of the fact he, he, uh, he saw the big crowd, and he had compassion on them, so he taught them. So that was a wayward crowd of Jews who had no shepherd to teach them, and he taught them. And it was only after he was teaching them, the disciples raised the issue of them needing food. Here in the Gentile territory, it's Jesus that raises the issue of the crowd needing food because he, here, he has compassion on the crowd because they had been with him for three days and had nothing to eat. So it's Jesus that raises the issue of the food rather uh, than uh, the disciples. So I don't want to make too much of it. I, I assume that there was teaching going on during those three days that they, the crowd was with him. But Mark doesn't emphasize it, again, because of this idea of what Jesus had said to the Seraphonician woman, that the ministry is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And Mark's making that emphasis for us by only discussing what Jesus did in Gentile territory rather than the fact that he, he taught. Um, and that wraps up this ministry to the Gentiles, and he moves back into Jewish territory in the rest of chapter 8. So uh, are there any questions here in our last few minutes or observations? Yeah, um, I think, Barky, if you know differently, you let me know, but I think there's just about as many answers to that as there are commentators on the, on the passage. But... First of all, notice the first thing to notice before even the physical stuff, the fingers and the ears and the spitting on the tongue, first thing to notice is that he takes him away from the crowd. So think in contrast to the, the Jewish woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, right? She touches him in the crowd. You know, he doesn't even see her until after the power goes out of him. He takes this man and takes him off separately by himself and I, I think, I, I, again, this is all speculation because it doesn't actually say. But I think Jesus is, is pointing out that this is not a nameless, faceless person in the crowd. But he, this Gentile man is someone for whom Jesus will pay attention, that Jesus will give himself to. So he takes him away from the crowd and deals with this man on his own. And then I think the best explanation is that the man has really no way of knowing what's going on. Jesus could do it with just a thought or just a word, but the man wouldn't know what Jesus was saying until his ears were opened. And so Jesus is putting the fingers in the ears, and it's like sign language. You know, I am opening your ears, and I am releasing your tongue. That's... That, I, Again, it's, it's still speculation because it doesn't actually say why he did it, but it seems to be, to me, the most reasonable. Yeah, I think, I think Mark's parenthetical statement there is, is not something that they got at the moment, but Mark's looking back after Acts 10. He's, you know, he's writing this after Acts 10 has occurred. So Mark's writing this gospel post-Acts 10. He's writing about stuff that happened backwards in time, and he's, he's saying, see, he's saying it's not, it wasn't just a vision that Paul received, but it was even in the teaching of Jesus is basically what he's saying. I'm not sure anybody got it. That, I don't think anybody rushed out and got some bacon right after that. But it's a reference backwards. 
All right, very good. Thanks. We'll see you next week.